Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Liz Crow. And in this podcast, we're going to discuss something that seems to be on everybody's minds at the moment if they work in critical care. Today, we're going to discuss the very hot topic of burnout. Now, let's just remind us the work that you do and why it is that you would have a particular expertise to talk about this. Well, I'm currently doing a PhD in staff wellbeing in intensive care. So I've spent the last five years of my life reading almost every single journal article, every piece of research in relation to critical care well-being. And that includes numerous articles around burnout and the measurement of burnout. And you can't go anywhere. Every single conference, every journal article, and certainly in social media is reporting just how high burnout is in critical care and how much risk particularly doctors are at. So let's start simply. Let's start, if we can, by just describing what is burnout? I think that this is still really unclear. In the research, when people are talking about high rates of burnout, it's usually because that they have run the Maslach burnout inventory on a population of individuals in critical care or elsewhere. And so when people are talking about high rates of burnout, usually if you look at the article correctly, you'll find that it's not necessarily 100% that burnout is high. It's more that there's a high risk of burnout or there's a moderate to high risk of burnout being demonstrated across units. Now, in paediatric intensive care, which I have more expertise in, some of the articles that do mention that, we can't really extrapolate that back into the Western world. There's very high rates of burnout being reported in countries such as Poland or Spain or other developing countries where the rates of pay, the hours that are worked, the conditions that people are working under is certainly so vastly different from the hours and rates of pay and conditions of people who are working either in the UK, Australia or the United States. So that's the first thing. We can't always extrapolate it. The other thing is is that when you look at the Maslach burnout inventory, some of the questions that are asked, they're not necessarily specific to work. Uh, They ask very broad questions such as, are you fatigued at night when you go to bed? Well, I think most people are fairly fatigued at night. Or, you know, when you wake up in the morning, Are you fatigued at the thought of going to work? Well, I think if we ask most people, do you have more energy on a day off or on a day that you go to work? Most people are going to report that they have more energy on a day off. I'm not really entirely sure how concerned we need to be if you're rating high on some of those scales. So I'm still really unclear about what burnout actually really is. It seems to me that there's people who are finding life tricky and stressful And that can get labelled as burnout. There's people then at the other end of the spectrum who are truly medically unwell with some condition that is then labelled burnout. What is the true meaning of the word burnout? And are we misusing it when we describe the risks and perhaps what we're subjecting ourselves to when we work in critical care? Well, I think there's no common definition. Christine Masak, who's the who produced the Masak Burnout Inventory, has written a book on burnout, would describe it when people are physically and mentally exhausted. The problem for me is, is that when you look at when they've done the measurement around burnout, they don't ask critical care staff at what time of day or night they do it. So I definitely ran the Maslach Burnout Inventory in my own research for my PhD. However, I'm able to record when people actually did the survey. Not surprisingly, people had higher risk of burnout when they completed the survey at 4.30am as compared to people who 
conducted the survey at 9am. So definitely completing the survey even at the end of a shift as opposed to the beginning of the shift had implications as to how people filled out the survey. I think there's no common definition. And the other thing is, is that people, when they're tired or fatigued or disillusioned or perhaps have compassion fatigue, all of that gets lumped under burnout. And I I don't think it's helpful. Constantly reporting that critical care staff at risk of burnout seems to me to be actually irresponsible unless we are prepared to say, this is how we're going to get out of it. I don't know why people would run the mass like burnout inventory in their own work environment if they have no intention on following up on the results and putting an intervention in place. So I guess we can agree that we don't really know what burnout means, but it's certainly banded about by lots of people at the moment. They clearly think they know what it means. Do you think the way we talk about this particular subject and using this very provocative word, is there a chance that we're putting people more at risk of whatever we describe burnout as being by talking about burnout? Or is it actually helping that this is becoming such a hot topic that people seem to want to talk about all the time? Well, everybody's reporting it. But when you go to a conference, how often do they say this is the intervention or this is our preventative measures that we're now following or this is a strategic framework to ensure that you're looking after yourself? That's where the gap is. That's what concerns me. And interestingly, because it's so prolific everywhere, I then looked into, well, what's the rates of burnout then amongst other occupation? And I have to tell you, librarians rate as high as critical care staff. It's the Dewey Decimal System, Ian. How stressful can it be? Sex workers have high burnout. Academics have high burnout. People who are in the merchant marines have high rates of burnout. You know, university students, it doesn't matter who you measure, they all rate very similarly to us. Is what burnout is, is just an indication of how busy life is in this century. The other thing is, is that when I have measured burnout in our critical care environments across Australia. So we have 480 surveys so far. It wasn't as high as people report it to be, despite the fact that they say that working with children increases risk. The other thing that amazes me is that I didn't just measure burnout. I also looked at meaning making, which continued to be extremely high, even for people who were rating very high, like high alert warnings on the Maslach burnout inventory. And people were also able to, despite having high burnout, have high meaning making, high quality of life, and not rating on the Keisler 10, which is a mental health survey. So you can actually be rating high for burnout and still find the work exceptionally meaningful or have higher compassion satisfaction, which is why, you know, my preference is the professional quality of life. It measures burnout, but it also measures compassion fatigue and compassion satisfaction. And they're not always correlated. So it's probably important just to clear up some of those terms you use, because I guess for people who don't work with this literature all the time, it might be a bit unclear. So you, you talked about meaning making. What do you mean by meaning making? So that's when people are able to say, the job that I do is really important. It has high value. I find meaning from the work that I'm doing. It has a connection with me. The work that I do brings value to my life as well as the lives of others. You can rate high on burnout and still think what I do is exceptionally important. And that's kind of missing from the conversation at the moment. We're only talking about risk. We're never exploring what actually keeps people there. Interestingly, in Australia, last week we had a TV show where they looked at junior doctors and burnout and risk of suicide. And so 
when the reporter was asking these junior doctors about their lives, for me sitting at home, I was thinking, this is horrendous. All of these doctors are speaking like they are really suicidal or really depressed. In the last couple of minutes, she then asked those same doctors, what keeps you in the job then? If your job is so awful, why are you still working in critical care? And immediately, their posture changed, their tone changed, their facial expression changed, and they started saying, oh, I love medicine. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. It's exceptionally important to my identity. I'm never more alive than when I'm on the unit, which all leads me to believe whatever you go looking for, that's what you find. And so if you're only looking for burnout, that's all you're going to find. If you took that same population and asked a different set of questions, would we also find that? Or would we find something that actually contradicts what we found earlier? So we've got burnout. We've talked about meaning making and your research and others would say that the jobs that we're in, people generally find rewarding and it gives them a a meaning to their lives. You mentioned compassion fatigue as well. Now, where does compassion fatigue fit in? Because these terms are all incredibly trendy and bandied around all the time. And people have said, oh, if you're burning out, you're at risk of compassion fatigue. What does compassion fatigue mean? Is it the same as burnout? Is it different? Or what do we need to do if we spot it in a colleague? Or how even can we spot it in colleagues? Look, I think compassion fatigue is really different than burnout. And my humble opinion is, is that if you work in healthcare and you genuinely care about people, then at some point in your career, you're going to suffer from compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is where you feel literally exhausted about the amount of giving that you have to constantly invest in, in your patients and your colleagues. And that's a resource that I don't think we have limits to the level of compassion. I just think we have limits to how often we can continually back up and keep doing it. The great thing about compassion fatigue is that we know that when it becomes present, it's quite easily fixed and that it's something that we can recover on. But you know those days when you're going to work and you just think, I just can't see another sad person. I can't bear the thought of having to diagnose someone with something awful again. I just feel exhausted from constantly giving. It's usually just a sign that you need some time off, that you need a break. And and what's missing from all this conversation is, how are we actually going to look after people? Because there's one thing that I can guarantee, Ian, is that the work's going to keep coming. It's not like we can say, oh, well, you know, critical care staff are getting compassion fatigue and burnt out. We all better stop working in this area because that's not going to happen. What we need to be asking is, what does keep you invested? What does keep you well? I think we need to be doing far more reflective work at work. We need to be looking after each other better. We need to be creating environments where we can actually talk through cases. Actually, my research has found is that the number one thing that causes stress in people's lives actually isn't work. Overwhelmingly, it's personal relationships. That's the number one stressor. The second is finances. It doesn't matter what you earn because people live to what they earn. So people who even earn a lot of money in critical care spend a lot of money. So finances continue to be a really high area of stress. In my research of nearly 500 people across five different ICUs, that's what consistently comes out. Work doesn't rate until about number five. And when it does rate... It's not deaths that stress people out. It's actually conflict with colleagues. And so that's a different conversation around burnout. So we've talked about three things so far, really. Burnout and what that means. And actually, I think what you're saying is that modern life, 
leads most people to be at risk of this thing that we have described as burnout. Modern life is stressful. Living in this modern age is difficult. The second thing we've talked about is meaning making and what that is. And actually that we're quite privileged in the jobs we do because many of the people in your survey, and I think I see it in colleagues and in myself, find meaning in what we do. And that's so important to having a fulfilling work life. And then the third thing is compassion fatigue, but that you can feel times where you're just not able to care in the same way that you did, but that is fixable. One of the things about compassion fatigue, though, is that it shows that when people are feeling it, they continue to give. It's not like they feel compassion fatigue and then they stop caring. They actually continue to be compassionate and engaged. Um, There's some research that shows that when people suffer from compassion fatigue, they're often so guilty about it, they're more likely to join a committee. It's not like people then disengage. It's just that they feel exhausted at that given time. And we need to be asking more questions about that. We need to be asking people, what brought you to this profession and what's going to keep you here? And how do we build on that? We also need to, I think, really understand what does normal distress look like? There are days that my job brings me to my knees. You know, there have been cases around child protection that I've gone and thrown up in the toilet. Highly distressing because it was highly distressing. Not because I'm burnt out, not because I have compassion fatigue, because a job can be genuinely bloody awful and trying and distressing. And when we look what's been happening, particularly in London and Manchester, it's incredibly challenging and distressing and makes you question around humanity. How much are we sitting down and having conversations about that? And then what are we doing proactively to look after teams and then individuals? So now we get to the real thing. We've talked about what these things are. We've talked about the fact that these things are being talked about. What can we do? Just for the next few minutes, why don't you describe what you think different units, whether it's emergency departments, intensive care units, libraries, whoever can do to help look after their staff to make sure that this burnout phenomenon, which we're seeing and people are describing and which we have said is inevitable. What can we do to help people that we work with and ourselves to try and mean that that is managed and becomes a manageable part of modern life, not something that's paralyzing us in our modern lives? Well, I think it's twofold. First of all, every individual in critical care has to look after themselves. Organizations can do something, but individuals have to look after themselves. If you want to remain in this environment, you have to make a commitment to yourself. When you catch a plane, they say, in the unlikely event of an emergency, when the oxygen mask fall, put it on yourself before assisting others. And that's exactly what we have to do in critical care. Do you have an exercise plan? Are you moving enough? Are you drinking enough fluids? Are you eating well enough? Are you getting enough sleep? Do you have enough strong connections in your life? When you have days off, are you so busy trying to advance your career by studying or being involved in research projects that you actually never have downtime? Do you read literature? Do you listen to music? It's exceptionally important that we all spend time in nature every week. Our bodies crave it. When was the last time you took your shoes off and when stood in a field with your feet in the grass, walking the bin out to the road? Barefoot is not the same thing. There has to be an individual component to it. And then organisations have a legal and 
a moral responsibility that when really awful things are happening in their environments, are we actually debriefing? Are we creating reflective spaces where people can sit down? Are bosses open to empathic conversations? When we think, you know, a colleague is struggling, do we actually go up and ask them, how are you? What can I do to support you? Do people get the message that their team is around them and for them and that you could call them at two o'clock in the morning and they would be responsive to that? It takes an individual commitment and it takes an organizational commitment. And if you are a member of a team, then you have a responsibility to others. If you're a team leader, that responsibility is increased. If you're a member of an executive, it actually falls to your shoulders. So as you know, I'm a clinical director of an emergency department. And I look around my colleagues and it's tough work at the moment in the UK and as it is around the world in emergency medicine. What is the one thing that I could do today, tomorrow or in the next week or so that could make a difference? How can I actually help my colleagues, assuming that I'm helping myself too? If we could value and appreciate the work, if we could say thank you at the end of every shift, if we could say to people, this was tough Today was difficult and tough and I liked how you did this or this was important or who are you going home to? You know, when you have new staff start, do you say to them, who's at home? How does that work for you? Do we ask people when we employ them, do you have a well-being plan? Do you know how you cope with stress? You know, if you're an introvert, you must find ways to energize yourself in isolation. That's how you recover. If you're an extrovert, you need to be surrounded by people in order to recover. So if you have a registrar start who's clearly really extroverted and living at home on their own, then we need to be connecting. They're going to be the sorts of colleagues that really value going out for breakfast at the end of the night shift or really value, you know, having a drink at the pub at the end of a difficult day. If we have colleagues who are introverted, we need to find ways of giving them space and time to recuperate on their own while giving them the message that support is just there to tap into anytime they need it. This is clearly a really important topic and one that I think we're going to explore again in the future. I know that with your research, you're looking at interventions that may make a difference. At Southampton, you very kindly helped us work on doing a similar survey, which is out there at the moment, and we'll be collating the results in the next couple of months and looking at interventions. We are really moving this forward. I'm really grateful to you for explaining your views on burnout and what that means. I think it's time that we do need to reframe the conversation to think about the inevitability of the jobs we do and how we can make those, through some really simple measures, more manageable, and undoubtedly we'll revisit this at points in the future, because this is a really important subject and one that we're going to have to keep thinking about.